I um, I don't know whether it's possible to cultivate a style. Nobody is precisely what they think they are. Love mm -hmm. is where you find it, where you find it, where you find it. Love mm -hmm. is where you find it. <clears throat> Maybe in the last moments of my life, moments of my life, I will be curious to know what means to die. Welcome to Folk Phenomenology. My name is Sam Rocha. This is episode 17 of season 1, featuring special guest Gloria Purvis on the gift of blackness to the church. Today's episode was originally recorded in July of 2020. Folk Phenomenology is sponsored by Whippenstock Publishers, who published my 2015 book, Folk Phenomenology, Education, Study, and the human person. The Institute for Christian Socialism, building a movement of the ecumenical Christian left. Solidarity Hall, Eden plus Utopia. Revelation Cable Company, Vancouver Custom Cables and Pedalboard Solutions. Black Catholic Messenger, an online publication for black Catholics. Where Peter is, there is the church. The Juan Diego Network, Catholic Audio for Latinos, and Commonweal Magazine, the leading lay Catholic voice for commentary on religion, politics, and culture. The featured sponsor for today's episode is Give Us This Day, daily prayer for today's Catholic. Mary Stomes, the editor of Give Us This Day, wrote to me on June 30th, 2020, which was just as I was preparing the notes and sending out some of the initial um, ideas for the interview that will be aired in this episode, which, as I said earlier, was originally recorded in July 2020. I want you to recall the summer of 2020, uh, the time of reckoning that it was in the United States. And for me, the moment it signified in terms of uh, my work uh, with my public-facing work within the Roman Catholic Church within the United States and the English-speaking world. And give us this day, Mary Stones, they really stepped in and stepped up to prompt me and encourage me and invite me to not only make a contribution in the more political or intellectual, academic um, type vein, but also within the spiritual vein of contributing um, reflections and becoming a member of a daily devotional uh, prayer publication. And it meant so much to me then, um, and I really felt it as a confirmation of a number of things, also as a conviction of a number of things. And it's just been such a joy to work with them. And as I said in previous episodes, when they were the featured sponsor, when the time came to raise the funds for this first season to go uh, and, and to launch, uh, they were there right in the moment when we needed them. And so I would encourage all of you to check out Liturgical Press and above all, give us this day um, if you're Catholic. And I would say even if you're not, if you're looking for something um, that is built around the Christian liturgical calendar um, and Roman Catholic liturgy, but offers something, I think, to anyone who's 
seeking to understand that and in some substantive non-confrontational way i think that would be a great idea for everyone you can find in the show notes uh, links to give us this day as well as to all of our other wonderful sponsors for the show if you would like to support folk phenomenology please share this episode subscribe to the show on your favorite app or platform and maybe leave us a review or a rating or you can also drop us a tip you can find folk phenomenology on social media accounts on twitter on facebook and on instagram today in lieu of one of the recorded uh, debates which we were not able to air we're going to listen to this original meeting between myself and gloria purvis a meeting that began before folk phenomenology was really an idea and really spurred folk phenomenology into becoming an idea above all the core idea of Dilexi Mundum. All right. Well, I um, want to propose to talk very specifically about anti-black white supremacy. Um, mm-hmm. And I have my own strong view that right now in today's cultural social moment in the United States, discussions of racism need to be kind of razor laser focused on anti-black white supremacy. I would love to hear if you like, just as a starting point, like, do you feel that's a, uh, an appropriate place to start? Would you back up? Oh, yeah. What do you think? Oh, yes. No, no. I, I think absolutely. I think it's a good place to start because you, we never really hear it, uh, these discussions framed in that way. But, I mean, that's absolutely at the heart of it. There's a specific anti-black white supremacy that, frankly, from the time that people in this country decided that black people should be property, that was the very beginning of this anti-black white supremacy, and we're still dealing with it today. I agree. Um, I, I'm, I tend to be somewhat, uh, I don't know, well, I'm a professor in my other life, so I tend to be kind of pedantic. And so whenever I, th- when, I th- when I think about uh, the problem of anti-black white supremacy in the church, uh, my mind goes to that kind of major theme in Du Bois's The Souls of Black Folk, where he says that the problem of the 20th, of the 20th century will be the problem of the color line. Um, I think Du Bois was right, and I think, unfortunately, that has outlasted the century that he predicted it for. Um, how would you describe the problem of the color line um, in relation to anti-black white supremacy in the, in the Catholic Church today, the American Catholic Church? Oh, gosh, you know, I think it's the boys that stole the white folk, actually, when we talk about this, when he, uh, uh, is it in Dark Water? Yeah, Dark Water. Uh, did he talk about Dark Water? Yeah, Dark Water, when yeah. This, when you get this idea that to be white is to own everything. I mean, I'm mm-hmm. summarizing sort of how he talked about it. And that's unfortunately what I, I mean, it's what you see in the church. And people will say things like, um, you know, Christ can be, you know, portrayed in any number of ways, but the fact is, in the majority of the churches, anywhere you walk in to the United States, the only way that you see Christ portrayed is as uh, a white European. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not complaining about that, but they have to understand that that does send a message back, particularly when people have uh, tried to have images of Christ that reflect 
uh, of the community. I find particularly whenever there's a black image of Christ, some reason for some reason there's this call for um, historical accuracy, mm-hmm. whereas we don't get that with. Um, uh, for example, in the Shining the Mac Conception, a friend of mine walked in and she said, look at that, they have a beach barbecue in Christ <laughs> and a church. <laughs> and, you know, I just kind of laughed because I never thought of it that way. And I'm like, now that she has said that to me, that's all I see when I walk in there. But in any event, I still know that it's Jesus that's represented. Mm-hmm. But it also makes it clear for some people that that is the only way he can be represented. And I think it does a disservice uh, to the church um, being a church for everybody, you know, being universal. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And I can see that sometimes with Our Lady of Guadalupe. I saw an image, several images of Our Lady of Guadalupe that was so whitewashed. Mm. And I was like, what is it about dark skin that yeah. people? Yeah, absolutely. Or even, what is it about dark skin that just cannot be seen as good? And I remember having a conversation with a priest after, actually, he was talking about sense. He says, you know, the black soul. And, mm-hmm. and I just joked with him. I said, but Father, why I gotta be black? Mm-hmm. And of course, sort of caught him off guard. And I said, you know, I understood what you're saying. I said, but language does convey certain things, particularly in our culture, where black is automatically villainous, bad, evil, and that does uh, go with how people perceive, I hate to say it, black people. Sure. And I see that problem with the color line happening uh, in the church because of the social conditioning outside the church that people have. It comes in and informs how there's liturgy, what's considered reverent, what's considered holy, mm-hmm. what holiness and reverence will look like, and things that are that are maybe that we might bring to the table as black people is that has to be whitened, if you will. Mm-hmm. And instead of us just being allowed to come as our authentic black selves, I remember John Paul II saying something along the lines, black people bring your gift of blackness to the church. And I was mm-hmm. like, if it could be seen, if only people would see it as a gift, huh? And wow, that's be so beautiful. If only people could see this as a gift instead of as mm-hmm. something that, oh my gosh, we need to Christianize this. And by Christianize, they mean Europeanize. That's right. And, and that's, that's, that's a problem. I remember... Um, and I talk long, so let me just add this other thing. I remember we were, I, I was uh, helping out a girlfriend of mine that was doing an RCIA in another church, and she was teaching the class with this very nice young white man. And um, he was telling her that some of the names of the people that were coming to the church, we needed to give them Christian names, you know. She's like, well, what do you mean? And he was saying they were at a disadvantage because of their names. Now, their names weren't like David or, you know, mm-hmm. this, that, it was things that he might find, he found that just were too problematic and she said well they might be the first saint Jalifa or whatever it is mm-hmm. you know what's wrong with these names um or Edwina or whatever it was that he thought was just a little too peculiar and mm-hmm. so she challenged him on it and I thought that's another problem too that they can't see that what we bring might even inform or could be saintly yeah no, I think and, that's um, you know so that kind of, these kinds of things are, are a problem. And, and I think Xavier E.B. Du Bois was a, a genius, actually, with some of the things that he said. He even talked about the psychological ways of whiteness. That's that exactly. That's onto. Yeah, that's exactly actually what I wanted to get kind of get into a bit deeper. Um, it's so, I, I love that you brought up the, that essay, The Souls of White Folk, because it's kind of like the... Uh, mm-hmm. It's the other side of the track of, of his, yeah. 
And he has this really amazing insight at the very beginning where he says, because I am black, I have to know you, white white folk. I have to know you intimately. I know everything about you, and you can't even see me. And and that that that's a theme that comes to me through black literature, including like Ellison's Invisible Man and many, many, many uh, the black imagination has this sense of that like the the darker brother is able to see the the the, the white person in a way that they can't even see themselves. I wonder like psych like that psychological insight for me is really powerful. Um, and it's also important to me that in the souls of white folk, Du Bois is very um, very ecumenical about about blackness. He actually casts it across uh, Asian identity, indigenous identity, Latin American. It's really kind of uh, fascinating the way he's conceiving it. But do you see, um, because I think this this psychological account that Du Bois gives is is sometimes really threatening to um, to to the majority status quo culture uh, of whiteness in the U.S. Um, But I do feel that there's something important there about the way in which um, those who are forced to see this performance of identity that is almost subconscious or unconscious by the people for whom that's just the water they're swimming in, that it does give a certain insight into maybe the human condition. But does it give us any religious insight, do you think, or any theological insight or devotional insight? Uh, uh, let's see. I would, I would say, I, I was thinking about uh, what Du Bois is to say. My poor, unwhite thing, weep not nor rage. I know too well that the curse of God lies heavy on you. Why? That is not for me to say, but be brave. Do your work in a lowly sphere, praying the good Lord that in heaven above, where all is love, you may one day be born white. Mm-hmm. It's right so heavy, and it says uh, it, it, it automatically puts us on a level of not being equal, which implies not really being made the image and likeness of God as white people must definitely be. Right. You know what I mean? And so when you start there, um, gosh, what kind of what kind of deprogramming has to happen? Mm-hmm. What kind of exorcism of the mind has to happen, really, if you want to say that? Because I do believe that this is a, a definitely a lie from from the devil that's placed in our culture and in the minds of people. And it also deprives them of the ability to understand that black people can teach them something about God as well. I think that's mm-hmm. one of the things that um, Cole talks about, mm-hmm. that they cannot comprehend that black people they could learn anything about god from black people yeah. which um again i think the prize is that, they, that then they're operating in a state of deprivation that they can't even hear the voice of the lord because it's coming from over there mm-hmm. and i see so much of people love saint francis hugging up on the leper not to say that black people are lepers okay mm-hmm. let me let me get that question but in the minds of some people we are that you know what i mean mm-hmm. we're and, and, and so i'm like how much do they miss God, the presence of God, the voice of God, because he comes from a place of something that they, unfortunately, because of social conditioning, interiorly loathe or fear or look down upon or cannot comprehend that it can be good, beautiful, and true because it comes from that, them, over there. Hmm. So uh, religious-wise, I think we have a a bit of a, a psychological exorcism, if you will, that has to be done. 
because of the conditioning and the lies from the devil that are pervasive uh, in our culture. I mean, it has to be pervasive in our culture if you can look at a human person and deny their humanity and say that they're a slave, Mm -hmm. you know? And then after they are free to intentionally, intentionally work to make sure they do not receive the equal treatments and rights they're supposed to receive, not only just under the Constitution and the laws of the, of the state, but also um, according to the teachings of, of our own Christian faith. Yeah. No, I, I, I think, so th- when you bring up the, the, the historical f- fact of like enslavement here's something that that worries me sometimes and i wonder what you think about it because on the one hand we have the story of exodus which is like this powerful story of liberation it's a story that i think that people have um for millennia uh associated with whenever they find themselves in under oppression or but on the same time like there's a really um uh a recent um uh, indigenous scholar who says her name is Eve Tuck. She says decolonization is not a metaphor, and I always sometimes wonder that. Like I always sometimes worry that. Like look, shadow slavery is not a metaphor. It actually really happened, and 246 years of that, with 100 years of Jim Crow on top of that, is not just yeah. some kind of a, a symbolic source of, of meaning or like like this is real, and we can't just confront it under. Um, exclusively mythic mythic terms um at the same time i'm also inspired by the way obviously like from cone's you know idea of the cross of the lynching tree and the way in which these um powerful sets of of religious meanings are set into uh into the experience of oppression and whatnot but i I don't know if if my concern registers with you at all but but maybe you could help me think about it or deal with it a little bit um because i do think the story of exodus is powerful but i also don't want to lose the concreteness of this anti-black white supremacy we're talking about especially as it relates to shadow slavery so um So if we look at this, um, I'm just looking at uh, Souls of White. So right before that, my point right there, he says, the assumption that all of the hues of God, whiteness alone, is inherently and obviously better than brownness or tan leads to curious acts. Curious acts. Even the sweeter souls of the dominant world that they discourse with me on weather, wheel, and woe are continually playing above their actual words and obligation of tune and tone saying, my poor and my thing. And he goes on into that piece. And um, so, I mean, I don't know how we get, how we, as I think about anti-black white supremacy, and I think about what you're saying about shadow slavery, I guess I keep thinking that sometimes the enslaved here psychologically are the white people, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, because mm-hmm. they, can't, they can't break those chains of supremacy Mm. Um, golden handcuffs, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, to see, you know, uh, who we are and, 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 and what we, and the beauty of us, yes. and what we deserve yeah. justly, right? So they, they mm-hmm. can't see the beauty of us instead. Um, and let's be clear, uh, to break those golden chains is going to take some pain on their part. That's right. Because they're going to have to... Uh, too often people don't want to deal with the ugly reality of white supremacy, anti-black mm-hmm. white supremacy. Um, because what does that say about yourself, 
right? When right. you look in the mirror and you see how it has conditioned you, mm-hmm. um, sometimes people get caught up in their own guilt and their own feelings and so much. I want to say, look, it ain't about you. Mm-hmm. Set yourself free, mm-hmm. you know, and, and then they can't, they, they can't um, liberate themselves in the sense of thinking about things without trying to get permission from a black person, you know? Is this right? Is this right? I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. for God's sake, you've got this. You might make mistakes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know. I, you know, Sam, as I think about it, um, I also think there's a counter-narrative that's being also uh, uh, continually plugged into, unfortunately, white America, uh, this idea that they're really the oppressed ones or under attack just because people are asking or demanding at this point what they are due. Somehow right. our calls for justice being perceived as an oppression of white folks I think mm-hmm. is a problem too, right? Yeah. Because then it, it, it makes it that it has to be either or, but all we're just saying is there's enough for all of us. Right. No, I think that's... And I'm I not sure if I'm addressing your shadow slavery. No, no, no. Shadow slavery case, no, I don't know. No, I think, I think you just, you flipped it into that, like, it's not only the historical conditions, it's also the psychology of the oppression of, like, the way in which whiteness oppresses white people as a kind of slavery. Yeah, Yeah, no, no, I, I, I think, I think you're right. And I think, I think that challenges me to um, make, maybe continue to be more creative speaking of creativity though some one point you brought up which really um raises what i think is an is another kind of touchy subject so in carter g woodson's miseducation of the negro um he actually pins a lot of the blame of this kind of psychological whitewashing on what on, on the black church um, he's very kind of uh, fairly kind of secular. I, I always see him as a kind of like proto Tanahisi Coates or something. Um, it, it's always it's always struck me though that like um, two things I guess one, at least from my American point of view, I think we tend to think of the Black Church as like the AME or like the Black Protestant. Church, yeah. Uh, yet I feel like, and this is something, by the way, that I'm not. I mean, I, I literally make this association myself, so I'm not just like blaming or pointing. But I think that um, the beauty of blackness in America has to be a sense of the black church that is far more ecumenical um, than than only the AME. Not to say, by the way, that the evangelical right. holiness traditions don't have something really unique to offer um, from themselves. But then on the other hand, and this is the other side of, of my thoughts, is that like when I read Woodson talking about like the mental enslavement that comes through the church, I, as a person who's not black nor Protestant, I sometimes nod my head a bit like, yeah, that happens. <laughs> you know, yeah. Um, yeah. that's that's pretty convicting for me. Um, and I and I think that uh, sometimes it's seen as unfaithful to to admit but uh but the fact that that's that we can admit to it sometimes i think means we have to have to have a conversation about it so those are kind of two slightly different angles but i wonder what you might think about them well i you know there's um you know malcolm x even had a critique of those things too i remember um Mm -hmm. reading and i can't remember who wrote this but a a priest a black priest and he was walking down the street and he ran into malcolm x he's like they had a brief conversation and when Malcolm X found out that he was, you know, 
in the seminary to be a Catholic priest. He's like, have you lost your mind? Mm-hmm. To that effect, because mm-hmm. there's this idea that within Christianity, as Black people, at least as practiced in the United States, no matter you know that there is that you have to leave something of your blackness at the door mm-hmm. that you're taught that um any anger righteous anger that you have that you're not to act on it and i think that's a big uh, misrepresentation of um of, of anger and, and so so in other words let me just say this i remember when um was with gene boss and bob and gene where the police officer burst into his apartment in, in texas and killed him while he was eating ice cream Right, 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 right. I think that, and everybody in Catholic media was just in love with his brother, hugging Amber Geiger, the police mm-hmm. officer that killed his brother. And I was reading a lot of uh, black media at the time, and people were outraged. Mm-hmm. Like, that that's the only way you want to see black people always accepting brutality from white people and never mm-hmm. standing up for yourselves. And, and a lot of people blamed Christianity yeah. because they didn't see in Christianity. Uh, a way for black people to uh, express a righteous anger mm-hmm. uh, and to be motivated by the anger uh, for justice. And I would say that that's a misreading of um, Christianity, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that I mean, I think is it uh, Thomas Aquinas talks about um, anger rightfully experienced moves one to justice, to mm-hmm. want to seek justice. And But yet, somehow the only thing that gets promoted, you know, among black communities, Christ like thing to do is to not be angry, to sort of swallow it, and um, to be like these meek, abused people who's always ready to be abused and walked on. And I would say that is not at all mm. the Christian message. And in fact, it is because of our Christian faith that we have every right to demand justice. We have every right mm-hmm. to express our anger. And um, and I would say it's because of our Christian faith when we understand and embrace how beautiful we are, mm. you know, and that we are made in this image and likeness, we should not accept anything less. Mm-hmm. Um, but but at that time, there's a, people call it respectability politics, right? You got to look yeah. respectable to white people, and that includes yeah, yeah, how yeah. you worship, you know, how you dress, how you talk, mm-hmm. the God that you worship, and you don't want to be any threat to white people. You don't want to frighten them. And again, I think doing that operating in that space doesn't allow us to operate as free, full human beings made in the image and likeness of God that have agency and full range of emotions. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and so those kinds of things, I think, um, you see that tension when people think uh, a black church. People particularly who uh, are outside of the Christian tradition, even some of us in it, uh, get that old, I, I consider it to be all okie-doke, that we're not allowed to be angry or express that. Mm-hmm. Because it's not considered reverent, it's not considered holy. And I think about the church fathers having fist fights. Yeah, <laughs> you know yeah, I yeah, mean? yeah. I think of that. It, uh, so it's almost um, a fear of a black rage that would be unchecked. And I'm like, if we haven't burnt this country down by now, <laughs> what makes you think we're going to anyway? And yeah. I, I, to me, that's another sign of God's grace on my people in our heart mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. our reaction to these gross injustices isn't to then, you know, exert that same gross injustice on the people who did this to us. Mm-hmm. You know, we may be angry and we may march and we may even, you know, cause some civil disobedience. But mm-hmm. we've never gone out and said we're going to just have a widespread killing of white people. Right. You know, indiscriminate, widespread killing of white people. Mm-hmm. It's always been, let's come to the table and these are our demands and this is what we want because we right. have inherent dignity 
Yeah. And so um, I could see the tension that Woodson was talking about. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I also say that if we really understand our faith, we this anger, this righteous anger, is absolutely should be telling us to seek justice. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that. And I'm and I'm tired of people telling me I can't be, I can't express this righteous anger. Or mm. even let me just go there when people look at the the uprising, right? Yeah. Um, they want to uh, say. Uh, that's evil, that you're doing this and that. I was like, this is a, a rage people are expressing mm-hmm. um, that this is their outlet. Now, I'm not trying to justify destruction or anything like that, but I understand where the rage is coming from or where the anger for justice is coming from. And sometimes I thought about, oh, white community, this is what you care about. It's profit and money. We're going to burn down all those things you care about. Mm-hmm. You don't like that? Mm-hmm. Then don't chill us. What we value mm-hmm. in our life. And I think about so, the plagues. Interesting. Yeah. Oh. Ooh. I mean, I mean, oh, yeah. you know. I mean, everybody wanted to talk about Jesus going into the temple, but I was like, no, 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 no. Whenever Moses went to Pharaoh and said, let my people go, when Pharaoh didn't pay attention to him, he destroyed everything he loved. He destroyed his firstborn son until he obeyed. And then whenever he tried to go back on the deal and chase his people down, he drowned him in the sea. I mean, I... I, I I guess now I'm doing what I said earlier I didn't like, which is the more symbolic and metaphorical way of <laughs> No, do it. No, it 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 speaks to me. I love it. Please do that. And and I think we need these are the things that make us think, I think, even when you come to the um symbolic, it makes people think, it gives them something to meditate on. And maybe it'll give them a way to see what they consider um I'll call it black rage. And I and I'm just like it's a rage for justice. It's a righteous anger, right. you know, that uh, yeah. we should want. I'm trying to find the thing on Aquinas because then I'll, I'll speak up a little bit more about it. Um, I'm just trying to pull something up so I can uh, talk sure. about Aquinas on on anger. But um, mm-hmm. so we have, and, and, and it's interesting. I, I really wonder without these uprisings if we'd still be having a national conversation on uh, racial justice. Absolutely. Would you and I even be coming together to talk about anti-black white supremacy? Mm-hmm. So, you know, and, and really trying to address the the problem. And, and then I think about a little bit what it is, how this anti-black white supremacy functions on the psyche of black folks, right? Yes, yes. You know, what that... that, that um, Sometimes we have to tell ourselves, remind ourselves, no, don't make yourself small so people can yes. feel big. Be who you are, but realizing there's a price to it. Yeah. Yeah. Realizing I mean, this, there's a price to it. This is where the, some of the social mantras, I think, are interesting. So, like, I don't know if it was Stokely Carmichael, but, like, you know, the black power anthem oh, yeah. of black power. I, 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 I found that, like, really um, expressive of something really deep. Um and then, and and I think, by the way, that empowerment narrative really spread to a lot of a lot of other people, uh, even people who weren't black at the time. But the sense of empowerment. But then came the black is beautiful, and I just love that because it was yeah. it was such a an affirmation of what you said earlier that from John Paul II, the gift of blackness. Um, yeah, which is yeah. truly. Um, uh, 
yeah, it just it brought with it this expressive side. Today, though, the this the anthem is Black Lives Matter, which to me is yeah. almost like, um, it, I, I I fully I fully say it in the in the in the in the in the spirit of the time, and I think it needs to be said over and over. But when I think about it in the contrast of Black is Beautiful and Black Power, there is something mm. there is something almost. Um, like it almost sounds to me like there's an like an undertone of like, look, y'all aren't getting it. You didn't get it. Like you've right. missed this so many times. So we're gonna make it basic for you. Black Lives Matter, yeah. right? Um, yeah, right. I don't know. What do you hear in those anthems? Uh, uh, um, maybe, Ooh, yeah. Black Power. Oh man, you know um, that was before my time. But coming up and, and reading about it and seeing it, it just made so much sense to me. And what I saw with the natural hair, you know, people mm-hmm. want to straighten their hair to be respectful. Just your full on unapologetic, beautiful blackness. Mm-hmm. And they were like, black power is a speaking against society's um, intentional uh, oppression of black people, the intentional uh, deprivation of rights. And they were like, black power. And then you think about the pants that standing there with their Second Amendment, exercise mm-hmm. the Second Amendment rights, but they're open, what they're done. Because they're like, we are going to defend ourselves. Mm-hmm. We are going to protect ourselves, our families, all of that against an oppressive structure that comes in and abuses and kills our community. Mm-hmm. And it was such a frightening thing for uh, people in the U.S. And the, <laughs> the U.S. government as well. But what it says to me, and there was and is the understanding that despite the lies about us, how we're represented in, in movies, books, advertisements, cartoons, mm-hmm. even the exclusion of our achievements from the history books, mm-hmm. we know that they, we have power. Mm-hmm. We have self-determination despite that you tell us we can't go past this spot. We can achieve and do and in the places where you're going to try to exert brutality against us to keep us from achieving, we are going to defend ourselves. We will not allow you to destroy uh, the beauty that is us. And also to say the word black, black is beautiful. Mm-hmm. It is to counter witness to the lie that it, that it isn't. Almost right. the same thing that we see in the soul of white folk, right? Mm-hmm. They have speaking it openly, uh, black is beautiful. And it's, it's amazing that that even be considered a political revolutionary phrase. Yeah. That's amazing yeah. that it even, because it's just a simple truth. Black is beautiful. And it's yeah. just a small story on that. Um, when I was in Orlando, Florida, for the bishops had a big uh, meeting down there, one of the speakers on the panel that I was uh, moderating said, Black is beautiful, and I asked everybody to repeat after them. He says, I bet for some of you that's the first time you've ever said it. And after that panel, I was talking with uh, a, a, a man from India, of Indian descent. Yeah. And this white gentleman comes over to us, and he was just so angry that people said black is beautiful. I mean, just really angry. And so we were looking at him kind of puzzled. Yeah. And he was like saying, you know, that everything is beautiful, da 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 And this Indian brother dropped some knowledge on him that was so beautiful. He says, yes, that may be true. But it is too often that black has been denigrated as not beautiful. Right. And he, he helped us say, and the fact that you're having this negative reaction to saying it right. just makes my point. Yeah. No, that's and so, so here we are now with Black Lives Matter, right? Yeah. You've yeah. got this truth. And yet too often to divert from that truth, people will talk about the ideology of the organization. 
And I'm like, why do you do that? Yeah, why Black Lives Matter Global black Network. Right, but I keep saying, why do they deflect and try to then, you know, drill down into uh, the ideology of three women that founded an organization of that name? Why? Because the police brutality. Why is it that they have to uh, obsess on that instead of trying to use all their energy to say, yes, that is true, and how can I make that more of a reality? Mm-hmm. No, me, I completely agree. Like the, energy, the energy spent on trying to say what's wrong with this and what's wrong with that is an intentional thing, in my opinion, to make sure we don't do the work to try to make it a reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I... No, I completely agree. I, I, I've often wondered, like, you know, would you rather it be Black Deaths Matter? Like, do you want it? Do you want it to be more graphic? Like, to me, there's some. Actually, I think Black Lives Matter is a is very is a very generous um, anthem because it allows us, in some ways, to like Black is beautiful and like Black power to affirm Blackness. Yet, it doesn't make really harsh demands for us to focus on, for instance. <laughs> uh, the fact that that black people are being murdered and killed perniciously with no sense of recourse to justice or to any kind of the civil entitlements that every other person should have because of just basic moral laws and principles um you know black lives matter you get to you get to affirm black life even maybe you could say and this is maybe my slight critique at the expense of forgetting about the, this is actually about black death. Right. Um, right. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I think that's, I think that's well, true. And you know, I was just having this conversation that's about black death and honestly, a right to a natural death. Right. Mm-hmm. We talk about a right to life. When we talk about, uh, 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 some conception for natural death. Well, don't we have a right to a natural death? Mm-hmm. Our death shouldn't be uh, hastened by the violent acts of the state that's supposed to protect us. Oof. So looking at it, because, you know, we talk about a right to life, right? Mm-hmm. we got a right to life. Why else have a right to a natural death? Mm-hmm. And I don't know if we ever think of it in those terms, right? Yeah. I have a right to a natural death. I have a right to live until God decides that this is my end of my time. Right. But when the state acts in a way to deprive me of that right, um, that is a gross injustice as well. Absolutely. Um, and we see that in the brutalization of George Floyd, um, uh, Breonna Taylor. Mm-hmm. Uh, I keep thinking of poor Tamir Rice, 12 years mm-hmm. old, in a mm-hmm. park, playing with a, a play gun. Yeah. And the police get a call, and, and instead of seeing a child with a gun and maybe at moment's hesitation, uh, he's killed, you know, by the police officer. But then again, there's that conditioning of a fear of blackness. That blackness can only be criminal. Mm-hmm. That blackness is not innocent. And um, that psychological wage, where you can see a white child and see innocence and youth, and oh, that can't ne- that can't necessarily be a gun. That hesitation that is benefited to a white child that isn't to black children. And it's because of this anti-black white supremacy that has conditioned people in our country for centuries. Yeah. No, I think I think that I think that's it's so powerful to think about the the like you said the right to death in this context because it it also shows I think how uh, some some people may see their kind of moral project as 
as trying to promote human flourishing. But in some cases, mm. in some communities, it's not let me have a flourishing life, but just let me die in some in peace and dignity. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's heavy, yeah. right? That's heavy. Right. Um, yes. yes, yes. I mean, I think about that because someone's like, oh, you know, we talk about from, you know, conception of natural death, but a violent death, they're like, isn't a natural death, so should we change it? And I was like thinking, but we do have a right to a natural death, just like we have a right to life, we have a right to a natural death. Mm-hmm. And I think that has some implications when we start to think of things in that manner. That starts to have some implications for how we view a lot of things, I think, uh, as, as Christian believers, and particularly from the lens of race. If we were to see, not only was uh, George Floyd, his life was taken from him, but his right to a natural death was taken from him as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, and the fact that that should also uh, move us to want justice. But again, a part of the anti-black white supremacy um comes into play here as well. And, and what I mean by this, Sam, is I keep thinking about why is it the police brutality, being able to talk about it, is such a problem that people have to say stuff like, well, the vast majority of police are good. I think, but we're not talking about that. Are we We're talking about specific mm-hmm. behaviors mm-hmm. And, and practices on the black community mm-hmm. that are not morally acceptable. And then I've come to a place where I'm realizing that some people think that kind of brutality on our communities is necessary for peace because there is something they see animalistic and uncontrollable in Mm -hmm. our communities. And it's something that they fear. And it's also the lie they've been told about the criminality and the black community and all these kinds of things. This started from way back, even after slavery. Um, I remember reading on slavery by another name as they created these pig laws and whatnot, that if you were unemployed, um, that that was illegal, but they only applied it to black people. Right. And so that made black criminality arrest go through the roof, not because we were more criminal, but because the law was uh, intentionally created with the intention of uh, creating a new slavery for black people. And they, But on the face, they did say it was only to be applied against blacks that looked racially neutral, but in effect, it was only applied against blacks. And so you had all these reports in newspapers at the time about the explosion of criminality of blacks and how we were fit to be free and see, look, 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 we got the statistical evidence of mm-hmm. the criminality. But the intention of it was to get people enslaved again and sent off to these uh, plantations, steel mines, all those kinds of things uh, for capital. Sure. You know, for, for money. And yeah. the state benefited from it. And so, uh, so this lie of our criminality right after our freedom mm-hmm. that was intentional for other purposes has stayed with us uh, uh, today. Because if you look at the greatest, uh, the greatest number of people that kill white people are other white people. Yeah. But somehow we are the threat to white peace and life and this and that and the other. And I'm like, it's, it's just another lie. It's just another lie that's it's put down on people that affect how they're able to perceive brutality against black people when the underlying assumption is, well, we must be doing something wrong. It must have been something criminal. And I was like, mm. Yeah. And it, I it think, deprived them, you know. 
Yeah, and I think one place where you can see that um, fairly directly, and this is to me, like, um, I I grew up in West Texas in the Hill Country. Um, uh, In that place, uh, the Catholic Church is is racially divided between mainly uh, European immigrants, Polish, German, um, and Mexican-Americans. And uh, mm-hmm. and one of the things that always struck me, especially in retrospect, as I thought about it, was that at the sign of peace, I could shake everyone's hand. But there were many families that I knew of who would never let me take their daughter's hand in marriage because I was Mexican-American. Oh, yeah. And it goes without saying, by the way, that the question of marrying a black person for them would have been, in some cases, like even like even more out of the question and yeah. and to me that that's that that getting back to the question of life like what does it mean to gather together as the church yet know that we are not willing to gather together as a church because to me like you can't be a church whenever you will not at least in potential see ourselves as potentially bonded together to, through the sacraments in every way possible Amen. which would include marriage Amen. Amen. well you know you're touching on something here um again this is anti-black white supremacy mm-hmm. um from its earliest stages is this myth of the black box right and this insatiable sexuality and mm-hmm. all the desiring white women when the reality was it was black women who were being raped and brutalized by black men by white men. Yeah. <laughs> and so this idea that um that still uh, I think is with us today that there's some animality mm-hmm. to black sexuality, right? That yeah. there's no they can't that there's can't understand or, or, or can't grasp can't grasp that we could be fit for marriage as marriage mm-hmm. mate as marriageable and when that happens you're I mean you're right it's it's completely uh, goes against what we believe as Catholics because race is not a precondition for marriage in the no. church it's just simply not um, but Thank yet God people it's will not. there right well yeah. I, I have you know talk to me about this um family that came to him, they were like, our daughter, that white daughter, is dating a black man, and mm-hmm. we've done all we could to break them up, mm-hmm. and I need your help to break them up, and mm-hmm. we need you to talk to them this, that, and the other, because we know you understand, mm-hmm. and he himself is black, you know, white, mother, black, black, something like that, right. and he's looking at them like, no, <laughs> no, and they were just shocked yeah. that that wasn't be a, a place of different, even in dating, you know, yeah. uh, people wouldn't even consider a date. I look at some of these um, Catholic dating groups or whatever. Oh my and gosh. I, and, and I'm just like, wow, if I were a single black woman, I would not in any way, shape, or form feel like mm-hmm. I'd, I'd be considered uh, a mate or a, somebody sure. that would even date, even though we have so much in common as a shared space. Yeah. But that is just a non-starter that race comes in there, and um, and again, this is a history I think that we don't talk about in our in our country. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm like, we didn't all come over here looking different colors like Vanessa Williams, and you know, like, <laughs> we didn't come up like that, and we didn't just magically end up 
looking this way. Yeah. You know, there was a definite rape and abuse of black women. It didn't just end with slavery. Um, Doctors in the Street by Professor Daniel McGuire talked mm-hmm. about the civil rights movement being animated by rapes of black women. You talk about Reese Taylor, who I think Oprah made famous by talking about her case. And do you know who the NAACP's number one investigator was for these abuses against black women? Yeah. Rosa Parks. Oh my People goodness. don't know that was um, me quiet she was a bad mama jamma okay mm-hmm. and she collected all these stories in the NAACP and all these black people were you know trying to seek justice for these women which you couldn't which you simply just couldn't get and a lot of rape also happened by white police against black women yeah and so part of the rights movement was animated by these women uh wanting to move about freely uh, and not be assaulted and accosted sexually by white men yeah. And uh, that's a, a hush hush part of uh, of the movement, but it but it's true. And again, I think because we don't have these frank discussions about the abuses against black people in the area of sex, mm-hmm. uh, that uh, we can't we aren't undoing these myths. And also, there's a myth of um, you know this upstanding white behavior and uh, purity mm-hmm. that I mean the record just doesn't bear it out. When you look at the at what happened in slavery and after. We have some coming to grips to come to. I mean, even with our founding father, Thomas Jefferson. Yeah. People want to say yeah. relationship with Sally Hemings. I'm like, it was rape of a teenage girl. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We can't talk about these things because it undoes the myths that we tell ourselves um, about, frankly, white supremacy. Absolutely. I want to come, I want to kind of come to uh, at least one last uh, topic, and it's one that's really near and dear to my heart, and it's kind of constitutive maybe of even this interview um and and i want to talk a little bit about uh black and brown solidarity um in the in the context of the united states of course brown has a particular um meaning in relation to um the uh, latin american latino hispanic whatever you want to call it they change the names for us every few years you know um (laughs) in canada i've learned by the way that brown is actually a signifier for the south asian community so i don't have access to it here the way i do um in the united states um the, the thing I wanted to bring up, though, is that like one of the um, probably most difficult things for me to come to grips with in the course of my own consciousness being raised to specifically anti-black white supremacy. And by the way, that's actually one reason I frame it this way, because my community, we also have experiences of racism that are not experiences of anti-black white supremacy. And the operative way in which anti-black white supremacy works in my community is actually by using us or us allowing ourselves to be used as these kind of moderate center points where you get model minority myths and and all these kinds of things where we will um like it's well known in the mexican-american community that we by and large sat the civil rights movement out because we were white on the census right Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. so for us it was we don't want to join in the struggle against anti-blackness we're so close to being white why would we stop (laughs) you know what i mean and and so For me, there's a lot of anti-black white supremacy that doesn't necessarily manifest itself through white people, but instead manifests itself through a kind of desire for whiteness, even amongst people of color like myself. And so, I mean, 
I, I want like the, the Catholic Church in the U.S. is clearly marked by its brown population. Like we are, uh, we're all over the place now. And the in the American yeah. Church, it's not going to hide from um, a certain degree of uh, a need for representation of our language of all these things. I I wonder though. Um, how much of a risk immigration issues and all those things that I support um, both culturally, morally, and every other way. I want to make sure, though, that I don't fall into uh, allowing the centering of some of those things for my community to be centered in such a way that they kind of secretly or even implicitly or maybe even explicitly uh, are harmful to my black brothers and sisters in the church. And so I'm, um, I'm really, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of in many ways, uh, as you can hear, maybe I'm uncomfortable with this part yeah. of the conversation, but we never get down to this because we're usually just answering really basic yeah. questions from people. But I wonder how you think about this. I'm really, I'm really, okay, I, I do. I look, I'm so glad you brought it up because sometimes I think um, the brown community is a shield that the sh- some of the church used to say, see, I'm not racist, I got all these brown people. Yeah. But they've never dealt with their anti-black white supremacy. I've always found it curious that some dioceses will send their seminarians to Mexico to get a diverse experience. I'm like, you sound to the other side of the track to that black community. <laughs> yeah. You know, I was like, why? Why do you need to leave the country learn another language to uh, do outreach in terms of the name of diversity. We have so many people of color right now, right yeah. here, black yeah. people, in fact, in these dioceses that are largely ignored and not evangelized. Yeah. Why not send those priests right on over there? Let them have a cultural immersion in those communities and serve them. Amen. But again, I think that's um, it's a safer thing to deal with to some of these people to, to leave the country and deal with uh, 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 people in Mexico who may not have the same historical relationship that black people have had to white, with white people in this in this country. It's this fear of having to deal with anger. Sure. Right? It's this fear of having to deal with the people being suspicious, like, what are you about? And it's a fear of, uh, I think, not being the one that's in control, if you mm-hmm. will. And... Yeah. Um, uh, so there, I do sometimes see. I say, "Oh, they use our brown brothers and sisters uh, as the cover." See, we're diverse. Look at us. We're not racist. Mm-hmm. When they've never really dealt with the some people call it the original sin of this country, which I would call anti-black white supremacy. Absolutely. And then when people come here, when people come here, uh, there there's something about well, at least you're not black. You know what I mean? Yeah. You're one step oh, up yeah. the, the ladder. At least yeah. at least you're not black. And, and I should uh, emphasize, by the way, I don't mean to cut in too hard, but just just before no, I get, before I get just uh, rightfully admonished by my own community, I should recognize that there are Afro Latin peoples all across oh. Latin America. So I was being oh, very yeah. specific to the brown oh, yeah. side of my community. The black side of my community oh, is yeah. is is evidence in some sense of how racist and how anti-black we can be. We, in many cases, as I just did, will even essentialize brownness as not having blackness within it. And the truth is we do. Like our brothers and sisters in Cuba and in oh, Puerto yeah. Rico, all over, even in oh, Mexico, yeah. by the way. Yeah, yeah. 
Sammy Sosa effect, right? Oh, that I feel so bad for Sammy, and I'm uh, like, what is wrong with my heart breaks for that guy? He, is, he was so beautiful, and now he looks just like to me. The psychological damage that has been done to him has been made manifest by how he's just yeah. just ruined his look. I was like, that beautiful yeah. black skin that he had has been ruined. Those beautiful brown eyes and everything, and I was like, mm-hmm. this is what anti-black white supremacy does to the black person it destroys them if they let it yeah if they let it so he needed to hear black is beautiful yeah he, he did. needed to hear black power oh. he needed representation of blackness that affirmed him that showed that what he had was a gift and not mm. a curse being whitened away and I love um, yeah sammy sosa my brother oh mm. i just want to i just want to hug him and say it's okay baby you're beautiful yeah. I mean, you know? my, my dad, my dad's an evangelist, um, and 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 in many ways, I, I think of myself as you know the son of an evangelist. And the very first principle, uh, and I think this this principle is kind of at the very like heart of American evangelicalism, going to the Azusa Street revival and all kinds of other things crossing its path. But the basic principle is just the love of God. That, that God loves us. Yeah. And I feel like, yeah. like, like what black is beautiful can do is not simply affirm someone's sociological, political identity. What it does is it offers them God's love and the way we experience love, which is by saying, I think you're beautiful. Like, you know, my grandma yes. used to say, all my grandchildren are made of gold. You know, it, uh, uh, <laughs> in Spanish, she'd say that all the time. And it was her way of telling us that, that we were all beautiful. And so to me, the message, the the, the like the cornerstone of, of the proclamation of the good news of the kerygma of the gospel is fundamentally that that God loves us personally. Yeah. And for yeah. someone who yeah. who can't love themselves and for someone who experiences self-loathing and self-hatred, that is a place where anti-black white supremacy is not only um, wrong on all these moral levels, it's also a fundamental impediment to understanding the meaning of the love of God and experiencing the yeah. love of God. Yeah, because if you start to believe that lie, you think you yourself are not lovable, so how could God mm-hmm. love me? And then there's this um, the self-loathing, and then the, the 
the psychological damage, and then the acting out in ways to continually seek white approval instead exactly. of it being instead of seeking God's love. Yeah. You know, um, again, it can make an idol of whiteness, right? Because you're seeking that approval where I'm a white. And instead of saying, you know, I am made in the image and likeness of God, and I am beautiful. Mm-hmm. God loves me. He made me with a purpose and a reason, right? And so to operate from there is to completely reject this anti-black white supremacy. Um, But it's a question. Uh, It also means you have to question a lot of things, right? And really try to think about and analyze why, why would I do, why would I even allow some of these things? But again, if you're, you know, conditioned from an early age, um, Sometimes uh, you don't see it because it's the water in which we swim and the air in which we breathe. But when you have that awakening, mm-hmm. you know, it's, um, I think it's a, it's a liberating thing to come down in a child of God. And I'm a gift. And what he's given me is a gift that I, I, that I will freely share within the church. And it also made me think of something, you know, somebody could be listening to this and say, well, she must hate white people or have some animosity toward white people. I do not. Mm-hmm. And the reason I don't is because I'm like, they have been seduced by a lie of the right. evil one. Right. And um, I pity people trapped in that where the devil has a foothold in their life. Mm-hmm. And I pity people that can't see the beauty of my blackness. Mm. I'm like, wow, you know, it's unfortunate that you, I like to tell people that like going into a garden and only being able to see one color and size and style of a plant. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know? You want to go in and see a garden that's bursting with colors and all these kinds of things. That's beautiful. But yet when it comes to humanity, it has to be this monochromatic, boring sort of only one thing, one way. I think it's just antithetical to God's design for the world. so I, I don't want people to, to hear that and automatically assume that because then and also people also hear things they get so defensive. Oh of course. Hear and receive this in the method in the in the mode in which we intend it, which is mm. a, a liberation of truth. To liberate mm. you to the truth. And to say we've got to we've got to deal with the, the anti black white supremacy if we all are gonna truly say we wanna you know, bring about the kingdom of God, mm-hmm. um, and that's the work that we that we are willing to do because we love the Lord. I mean, believe me, I could just check out and just go and be up in the black community, like the heck with everybody else. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. I can uh-huh. do that. You know, and uh, but that's not what God has asked me to do, right? right. Um, and also, I think we have a responsibility uh, as believers to work. Uh, for the sake of justice for for the black community because we've been wronged for so long. Right. Um, and, and to be able to have these conversations. And I want to say also, I'm a joyful black woman. Yeah. You know, people are like, oh, let's see her. Look, I am a joyful black woman. I love <laughs> my blackness. I love it. Mm. I love our music, our food, our culture, yeah. our, our history of achievement despite opposition. I right. mean, I, honestly, I'm like, we have done so much despite all the intentional opposition against us. And to me, that makes me even say, oh, how blessed we are by God that we're still overcoming. And I mm. keep thinking how much more wonderful and can we achieve if these shackles of anti-black white supremacy were removed from our 
removed from our society mm-hmm. and how much more society would benefit from that you know amen yeah, you know, this is probably the only thing I disagree with Du Bois and his uh, essays about is sometimes it gives the impression that um, that there is a sort of essential whiteness at the center of Christianity as a uh, hopefully um, someone who, 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 who did his homework on the early church. Like, it, that's my only point I want to tell Du Bois. Du Bois, you know, Christianity's been in Africa a lot longer than it's been white. Um, Yay! And, and another, another, it's true, and you know, people don't even realize that the, the church, demographically speaking, has never had its majority of of people in Western Europe. The Orient, the yeah. what were called the Oriental churches, always vastly outnumbered. And today, Latin America and Africa are the, you know, where the church is growing uh, demographically. And I think people in the U.S. often see the Pew reports of their uh the the weakening of church attendance and whatnot but they almost selectively forget the fact that the church is actually growing and 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 blossoming in other places that just don't happen to be places where whiteness is a kind of cultural hegemonic force and i even wonder sometimes whether some of the narratives of oh the church is failing despair blah 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 and cynicism are their inability to admit that there is an essential uh, core of Christianity that does not necessarily suffer from the allergies of anti-black white supremacy that has been yeah. continues and will continue to grow and be the, you know the hope that that Christ gave to Peter. Well, the majority of that church is a church of color. I mean, that's just the truth, right? Mm. And we look at the uh, how the church is going in Africa and in the Philippines and places like that, that people somehow see, well, that the church is dying in Europe and the church writ large is dead. Is it, yeah. is it true? It's just simply not true. Um, and I think that, uh, but again, Sam, this is where it comes into how is that reflected and how God is represented in art in our, in our mm-hmm. church in the United States, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And by and large, how he's represented, how Jesus is represented, how the Holy Family is represented, is as if it came from Europe, right? right? There is There aren't a lot of, and in anti-black white supremacy, even when you put up uh, these pictures of um, Christ as being an African, mm-hmm. a black man, people are uncomfortable. People are, or, or, or people automatically say, well, you're just making this a political, I <laughs> so left up, that you're, now you're making it political and you're mm. like identitarian, blah, 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 blah. Mm. And I just laugh at that because I'm like, well, I'm not doing this to counter anything. I'm doing it because I find it beautiful. Right. And, um, and it, 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 why can't we meditate on that? And, uh, and also that most of the church in the world doesn't look like, you know, the European representations that we have. Yeah. And, I mean, uh, and I be generous to Europeans, even Europeans don't look right? European. I was going to say that uh-huh, even true. even Europeans don't actually all look the same. It's kind of a bad rap that they give themselves whenever they talk this way. Like, you know, a Spaniard, a Frenchman, an Englishman, a German, a, a Nordic person are hardly like monoliths, right? <laughs> You're right. You're right. You're absolutely right. But you know what? It's interesting that you say that because it's a, uh, 
uh, you know, when people come to the States, you know, it's not that you're German or you're this, that. You can all look different, but the one thing that they'll say is where your racial identity is that you're white or how you're classified or considered right. as white. And with it comes, you know, certain benefits, certain privileges. They don't have that, uh, the, uh, the burden of black. Right. That additional burden. And that's one of the things that I talk about sometimes with people, you know, because they really hate the term white privilege. It's like, I grew up poor. I didn't do this. I said, but you didn't grow up with that additional burden of having to deal with race in the way right. that black people do. Right. So there's a, the idea that when the black priest shows up, I remember them priest saying, being told that, well, can we just have a real priest? Mm. <laughs> can we have a real priest? Uh, you know, uh, those kinds of things that people actually say. In this day and age, when they encounter uh, a, a black priests, and it's a, but it's a sad statement on the social conditioning that doesn't stop at the at the at the door of the church. It ain't, sure. it's right all in the church. Right. And what do we do to to deal with that? And lastly, let me just say this: another example of anti-black white supremacy. I don't know if you remember this story about the KKK priest out of Virginia. No. There was a priest, and before he came into the priesthood. He was a member of the KKK right here in D.C. He burned crosses on people's lawns, including some Jewish people. And it turns out the black family whose lawn he burned across on were Catholic, right? Mm -hmm. They were Catholic. So he was charged and had to pay all this stuff back, which he never did. He fled the area, uh, sort of hid his identity, and then came into the church, was sent off to the North American College in Rome. Yeah. And um, then... Did it, it was at several diocese and finally ended up in Virginia. And with the Charlottesville uh, uh, murder of Heather Hire, one yeah. of his old students said, I wonder what happened to Father So because he used to always talk about Robert E. Lee was a saint and all these kinds of lost cause types of things that he was teaching his kids who were being homeschooled. And when she saw that he was a Catholic priest, she was shocked and she reached out to the diocese. And when it came out, his background, I thought to myself, how do you make it through seminary? Mm -hmm. How do you make it through the North American College of Rome? How do you mm -hmm. make it all this time with those sentiments? And nobody thought it was a red flag. And, and, and also that he didn't hear anything in his education to become a priest that made him have a moment of conscience. Mm -hmm. That tells me something is missing. Yeah. And if something is missing in grasping and dealing with the very real anti-black white supremacy that is endemic to this nation. Yeah. If he could go through all of these things in no way, shape, or form, to have a moment of conscience and realize either A, the priesthood wasn't going to be for him because he couldn't separate from his, um, his uh, you know, feelings and thoughts, or B, that he needed to actually have a come to Jesus moment and then mm -hmm. actually go back and make uh, repair like he was supposed to about a quarter and pay these people for the damage he had done to them. And mm -hmm. I also thought of the effect of the faith of those black Catholics when they found out that he was a priest. Right. That due to them. Scandal. So yeah. all these kinds of things, I think, shows that we have uh, some gaps and holes missing mm -hmm. in our formation of priests, um, in our preaching and um, catechesis, and, uh, and, and how we talk about the faith. And that we skip over something that has to be addressed and to rid ourselves of the stains of anti-black white supremacy wherever we can in our faith uh, in the United States. Amen.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Folk Phenomenology Season 1, and special thanks to Gloria Purvis. I would like to again thank my sponsors, Whip and Stock Publishers, the Institute for Christian Socialism, Solidarity Hall, Revelation Cable Company, Black Catholic Messenger, where Peter is, the Juan Diego Network, and Commonweal Magazine, and also, once again, very special thanks to our featured sponsor for this week, Give Us This Day. The friends of the show are the Commonweal Podcast, the Gloria Purvis Show, Disinherited Podcast, Davud Gosley, Up Too Late with Teresa Zoe Williams, Conversation on Tap, Saintly Witnesses, Kinder Conservative, The Show, Gregory B. Sadler, and Kush Classics. And this week, I would especially like to kind of make an honorable mention of a friend of the show who has not been mentioned as an official friend of the show, I suppose, but who I believe really deserves some credit for the making what was the raw version of today. And I know the audio was raw. I didn't at the time have any idea that I was going to be airing it for any purposes other than transcription. But bringing that into reality and into print, and that is the Church Life Journal, a journal of the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame. Not only did they publish uh, that July 20th, 2020 interview, The Gift of Blackness to the Church, of which you've now heard the unedited raw audio, they also um, invited Gloria and I back uh, to the Institute this past spring and April of 2021 for their Conversations That Matter, the Intersection of Racial Justice and Life Issues series. You can find some links to all of that in today's show notes uh, to accompany uh, the occasion of sharing the interview that uh, started it all in many ways. So, so much thanks to um, the McGrath Institute, to Jess Keating Floyd, to Archer Rossman, and everyone at Notre Dame who has shown so much support to my work and to Gloria's work and really who brought us together in many ways uh, in print and also in various forms of media along the way. Make sure to check out the show notes for links to all the friends of the show, including our special honorable mention, and of course the sponsors for the show and our featured sponsor, again, give us the stay. Please share this episode and subscribe to the show on your favorite app or platform. And be sure to follow us on social media. Uh, be sure to let us know what episodes you're listening to, maybe that you're listening back to once again. Um, all of that volume, all of that signal boosting, all of that discourse and follow-up uh, really, really helps the show and really helps people continue to find out about folk phenomenology and this its inaugural first season. Next week is another reprise of sorts, another repeat of sorts, but of a very different kind. Uh, many of you listeners to the show may know that also in the summer of 2020, on June 11th, I debated Catholic Answers apologist Trent Horn on the question whether a Catholic could be a socialist. Trent uh, agreed whenever we set up that debate uh, that he would be willing to consider a future debate on the subject of capitalism. 
And next week, you will get to hear that very follow-up debate, uh, the follow-up to the original one in a very different format, uh, where we also talk a bit about the former debate, and we also engage with uh, some of the claims that Trent makes in his book, Can a Catholic Be a Socialist?, which he co-authored with uh, Catherine uh, Pakaluk. There are, of course, other episodes on Debate and Delight, a monologue on my relation to and approach to debate in this show and in my life. And then, of course, the first debate with David L. Gray on critical race theory. For those interested in critical race theory, um, there is, of course, another follow-up episode to that episode. And this Wednesday, tomorrow, October 27th, I will be at the University of Dallas giving a talk for Student Leaders for Racial Solidarity, a new group there, on the intersection of critical race theory and Catholic social teaching. That'll be at 7 p.m. in the SB Multipurpose Room, and it'll also be uh, streamed on Zoom. If you're interested in seeing the live stream, uh, just contact me via DM on Twitter or personal message on Facebook or also an email. Folk Phenomenology is written, hosted, recorded, and produced by Sam Rocha. That's me. If you want to find out more about me and my work, feel free to visit www.samrocha.com. Okay, well it's time to go out and love the world. Dilexit Mundu. What is interesting to me, really interesting, and I can't define it, it's because it's interesting. I can't say exactly what it is, but it's the most interesting, I don't know the word, concept, idea. My job is to somehow make them curious enough or persuade them by hook or crook to get more aware of themselves and where they came from and what they are into and what is already there, and just to bring it out. This is what compels me to compel them. And I will do it by whatever means necessary. you find it. you find it. you find it. you find it. And you don't know where it And it is a terrifying thing. It's the only human possibility, but it's terrifying. Through the eyes of our ears, we see the beauty of hope. We see the beauty of pain. We see the beauty.